2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 12. And we're going to do the first two verses to begin here. Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Raise your hand if that describes you, that you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Great, the Bible has a promise for you. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Talking about persecution. And in the U.S., we're in a really special place here because the United States from the beginning was a haven for religious people fleeing persecution. This is where you could come if you were being persecuted. It's where the Puritans, the Baptists, the Quakers, all were kicked out of Europe. And you can go to America. There's nothing over there. You can go there and practice your religion however you want. Uh, and because of that, from the very beginning, we have had very zealous, godly, religious examples who have have led the way in the country. From the beginning, you had guys like John Leland who basically held the Constitution hostage until he put a clause in there about religious freedom. Uh, he's from Virginia, so back home, he, we really liked John Leland. So uh, it's all set to be ratified, and he's like, you don't have anything in there about religious freedom. We're, the Baptists are not voting for this until you get it in there, and they got it in there. That's, where else does that happen? That's awesome. You know, even this year, Billy Graham laid in state in the Capitol building for two days. That's, that's unbelievable. That's, that's like a, almost a leftover from a bygone era that a preacher was in the Capitol building. That's crazy. We are blessed, and especially down here. We live in the Bible Belt. That's a good thing. People will kind of insult you for that. But I'm glad I live in the Bible Belt because i got to raise kids, you know. But Paul reminds us here, even though we live in a very blessed country and we're glad to live here, that's not normal. It's not normal for a Christian. We're grateful for it, but it is the lot of a Christian to be persecuted. You know, the word tells us over and over again to obey the commandments of God, right? Live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Who can be opposed to that? You know, Paul and Thessalonians, right? Just to live quietly, simply, work with your hands, don't cause any trouble, don't get in anybody else's business, honor the king unless he tells you to do something sinful, just be good people. But the devil can't allow that because the devil knows that it's those little things that bring transformation to families and cities and cultures, right? So he stirs people up to persecute us. And the end of verse 12, that word persecute is the Greek word dioko. And it actually means to hunt down. Like you got to think like a fox hunt or bloodhounds chasing somebody down. It's like going out of your way to find somebody to do them harm. That's what the devil wants to do. It's like, we just want to live quietly and serve the Lord. I can't let you do that. That's, that's too powerful. The Lord can use that too much. You know, and, and without at all trying to make any kind of political point, consider how in the last couple of years, Christians are being dragged before the court of public opinion with just not doing anything, just minding their own business, doing things they've done for years, and now they're brought up on TV. Can you believe what they're doing? It's like they weren't hurting anybody. They were just, they were living their life. Yeah, but can you believe it? That's, that's kind of what I think is that we're being brought before public opinion to be shamed. And in America, we're not used to that, and that's okay. But we start to think something is very wrong, and it's not good. But Jesus said in John 15, 20, to remember this, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And that doesn't give us any help because they didn't keep his word. They nailed him to a cross. Christianity began with the greatest man who ever lived being killed. And he says, if you're going to be my disciples, you shouldn't really expect anything better. 
And the Lord has blessed us here, and the Lord has blessed the church throughout the world and at different times and different places. And at least uh, in, where in our experience, Paul talks about evil people and imposters. They've had a hard go of it, at least in our country. But now, at least it seems to me, and I, I think every generation feels this a little bit, but, you know, uh, the expansion of evil is just accelerating everywhere. Where people have just decided that they're done with the Lord, and they're going to figure something else out, and the, the, inc- the increase of sin and lawlessness. You know, uh, the last president, Barack Obama, said this. He said, whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, at least not just. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, and a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. I'm not trying to slam him for that, because he's right. He's right. Things are, are changing at, a, at an accelerated exponential pace. And man, if I had a dollar for every pastor or godly man who warned me before I came down here, you know, I, it was tough for us serving the Lord, but I can't imagine the stuff you're going to have to go through. Like I'd go to these pastor's meetings and there's a bunch of great older godly men and they're discussing things and they'd look at me and I'm the token 25-year-old guy and like, you're going to have a rough time of it, pal. I'm glad I don't have to deal with all this stuff. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, we'd, we'd have our own mega church building right now. <laughs> like you got so many difficulties it's going to be tough it's going to be hard but here's the thing i'm not afraid of that i'm not afraid of that we shouldn't be afraid of that because paul tells us here that that's normal and if you keep reading he says this is going to happen they're going to get worse and worse persecution is going to come but verse 14 but as for you continue underline that word continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I have had this conversation with uh, my father who's a pastor and Sandy Adams from Atlanta and it's really interesting. We, We saw some great Men of God in the 20th century, heroes of the faith, guys like Billy Graham, guys like Jerry Falwell, guys like Chuck Smith, and others who just led the way and just had made an incredible worldwide global impact for Jesus Christ. And the, the metaphor that we're going to use today, those guys were like all-star quarterbacks. Like they were just, they were, they were pocket passers. They just never got hit. They never got knocked down. They just stood there and they threw 500-yard games, 600-yard games, five, six touchdowns a game. And the enemy couldn't stop them. That's awesome. But the next part of the conversation goes, but I don't know that I see men like that on the horizon. There might be. I mean, the Lord can turn it around in one day, so we're not going to despair about that. But it's like, it's not like, well, at least we've got this guy or this guy. It's like, who's who's there to, to lead us now? And here's, what, here's how I want to understand this. And this helps me and it gets me fired up. If those were the, the quarterbacks, the all-star quarterbacks of the game, they were scoring touchdowns, making great advances for the kingdom of God. Okay, when you score a touchdown, what happens? You kick it back off and the other team gets the ball. And the defense comes out. I feel like for us, at least today, we are called to be defense in the church, to get out there and play defense. When I played football, I played both ways, but I love playing defense because the rules were much less complicated. Like you just That guy will have the ball. You get across the line and smack him really hard until he drops the ball. Don't let them get past this line. It's like, yes, sir. You know, back then they're drawing up plays, and you run here, and you do a little loop-de-loop. It's like, they're going to try and ca- cross this line. Don't let them do it. It's like, all right. You know, and you get, you know, you, you, you think... 
you'll, you'll get like handsome offensive players, right? Where it's, you get that. Like you'll get, you know, guys that are just like, you know, they, they date models and they're celebrities. And you know, defense, you get guys like Ndamukong Sue. Just like snarl on his face. Or, or Jack Lambert from the Steelers missing all his teeth and like, you know, ugly people, right? Ugly, grumpy, angry, strong people. That's what a defense is do. Your job is to stop the enemy's advance, hold the line, and do some damage. That's why I liked being on defense. It's like, I'm just going to run at you as hard as I can. Try and stop me. And this, look what Paul urges Timothy to do here. He says, as for you, continue. That's the Greek word meno. It's the same word that John uses when he writes about abiding in Christ. It just means to remain or stay or continue. He says, Timothy, your job is to keep going and don't go backwards to hold on what was taught to him by Paul and others. He's like, Timothy, they're coming for you, so hold the line. Get down and don't let them get across that line. And you would, might ask, why? And he says, knowing from whom you learned it. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's pointing to his own character. He says, why should I hold on? He says, because you know who taught it to you. Paul's pointing to his own example. Uh, and he says, from childhood, he's pointing to Timothy's family. We know from 2 Timothy 1 verse 5 that Timothy's mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures from a very young age. And Paul's like, you have these great examples in front of you. These awesome people taught you, so do what they did. Great and godly men and women have kept the flame alight in the church for thousands of years. And whether it's a, a great man like, you know, like Chuck Smith, or whether it's just your mom or your dad or somebody that you knew in your neighborhood, or even like something you read someplace, where somebody was holding the fire and kept it going and now passed the torch on to you. It's our turn now to keep the fire going. It's real easy to look back and remember the glory days. And we love looking at the glory days. The Bible says, remember, right? Put a stone of remembrance, have a holiday, have a feast so that your kids will say why. And they'll say, I'll tell you why, because God did this for us. That's great. We're supposed to remember that. But it's our turn now. You might want to turn here, 2 Kings chapter 2. This, when we think of passing the torch or handing off the mantle, this is the story that, that first comes to my mind. 2 Kings chapter 2. This is when Elijah is on this journey outside of the land of Israel. And Elisha, his servant, is with him. And Elisha is supposed to be the next prophet. And all these prophets, everywhere they go, they come to Elisha and they kind of take him aside and says, hey, God showed me that Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven. And Elisha's like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm not going anywhere. And Elijah's like, hey, I'm going to go on to the next city. You stay here. Elijah's like, no, I'm going with you. Finally, they come to the Jordan River. Elijah takes his cloak, strikes the Jordan River. It parts. They go across. And only then Elijah turns around and he says, all right, Elisha, what do you want? Elisha's like, if I'm supposed to do your job, I'm going to need twice the spirit of God that you had because I'm half the man that you were. And Elijah's like, all right, well, let's see what the Lord does. And then in 2 Kings chapter 2, starting at verse 11, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, 
the God of Elijah. And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. If we look back on those who have gone before us, great men and women of God, and we can feel inadequate. We can start to feel, well, I'm not anything like that guy. I mean, he started an international ministry. This guy, this girl, they did this or that, and I'm no one like them. I'm nothing like my father. He was a great man. I'm nothing like my grandma. She, she loved the Lord, and she prayed like nobody else. And we're like, and, and look at me. That's kind of how Elisha felt. He's like, I need double portion, man. I'm half of who you were. And he sees Elijah go, and he's like, he calls him the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He's like, we didn't even need an army with this guy around because the Lord used him so much. And Elisha is like, I have to pick up this cloak, and I'm supposed to be that guy now. How in the world am I supposed to carry on Elijah's mission? But what's, what was different between the two of them was not as important as what was in common. Because when he gets to the, to the water, he knows where Elijah, Elijah has gone, but his question is, where is the Lord? And the Lord was with him, and the Lord enabled him to get across the water just like Elijah had done. What's the point? We might not be like them, but it's God who is the same. They were not great. The people that have gone before us, they were, might have been great people, but they were affected because the Lord used them. And because we serve the same Lord, we don't have to be intimidated and think, oh, the, the glory days are gone and we'll never move forward again. God's like, no, I'm still with you. And here's the other thing. God doesn't want you to be like them. God doesn't need you to be like them. You know, my, my father is a pastor. I grew up on, in that church. I was under his teaching. I was trained in ministry by him. But he and I are different in a lot of ways. I'm not interested in being just like him. You know, there's other great men of, men of God, pastors that I love. I love the way Tony Evans preaches. Where he gets into it and just every word is so perfectly chosen. But I'm not Tony Evans. I'm not going to preach like him. I'm not going to try and do ministry like, like them. I can learn from them, but I'm not them. And God's like, I don't want you to be them. I want you to be you. It's the same thing for you. I don't need you to be him or her. I need you to be you and trust me. So we might not end up doing great crusades with thousands of people or founding great organizations that are going to do amazing work. But God has chosen us for a reason. He says, I need you to hold the line for me. And he identifies two things here that we're going to look at as we keep going. Two things that Timothy's supposed to hold on to. And number one, he says, the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation, the scriptures. And number two, wise for salvation in Christ Jesus, the gospel. These are the two things that we're going to look at. If we're, if we're going to be playing goal line defiant Christian defense, this is where we draw the line. Like, well, what do we stand on? What hills do we die on? These hills right here, the word of God and the gospel, and they're tied together. So starting at verse 16, Paul's going to describe the scripture for us. And he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The scriptures, that's the Bible. And the Bible is a collection of the scriptures. And Paul gives a spectacular definition of what the Bible actually is here. He says, first, it's breathed out by God. Your Bible might say given by inspiration of God. The word there is theopneustos. It comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and neustos, which is the word pneuma, which is the word for spirit. So you heard of theology, that's the Greek word theos, and you know, you've heard of like your pipes giving a pneumatic hiss, like when air is being let out, right? Because it's the air being released, pneuma. So put them together, it's God breathed, breathed out by God. The Spirit of God has brought it forth. The Holy Spirit was the divine author 
of the scriptures. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. At Calvary Chapel, we are going to teach verse by verse through the Bible, and everything we do will be grounded in the scriptures. Why? Because it's God's self-revelation. This is God, if this is really God's word, that's a big deal, right? <laughs> if God actually said this, then we need to know what it says and do what it says and strive to understand what it says. Well, the Bible was written by men. Yes, of course it was written by men, right? We, we don't believe, like the Mormons do, that we found gold plates where it was engraved into the plate and we just transcribed it. Or uh, Muslims believe that parts of the Quran, uh, Muhammad went into an ecstatic state and like wrote it down and he woke up and, oh, look, I wrote a, a holy book now. We believe that these men wrote it down, but that the Holy Spirit was carrying them along, that he was guiding their pen, guiding their words to be exactly what God intended. That's what we call inspiration. Not like, that's an inspired idea, but theologically, inspiration. The Holy Spirit guided these men to write. Now, because we believe that the Bible is inspired, two other in words, we also believe that it is infallible, which means that it gives you correct ideas and it's inerrant which means it gives you correct information. So infallible, everything the Bible teaches about God and heaven and hell and all those things that you can't just put in a microscope in a test tube and figure out, that it gives us the right ideas and that it's inerrant. It gives us correct information. So it's not just, oh, the ideas are good. No, the ideas are grounded in the information. They're both perfect. And we also believe that it is profitable, Paul says in verse 16. It's breathed out by God and profitable. This is the Greek word ophelimos. This is a, a, it's an accounting term or a business term. It, it describes a good investment, right? You can make a bad investment. You ever spent a lot of money on something that you thought would help you and you ended up having just to throw it out at the end of the day? Or you take a college class or something that you're like, that did not help me with anything. It was not profitable. It could be described as worthwhile or advantageous as opposed to dead ideas and dead works. Like the Bible is profitable to make us who God wants us to be as opposed to other ideas that men have that I, they might help with something, but they're not going to change your life. The scripture is different. And it's worthwhile, it says, for four things. Number one is teaching. Right? This is not complicated. It teaches us truth about God and about life. Number two is reproof. What does reproof mean? It's the refutation of bad ideas. So it's not just teaching you the right ones, but it's correcting the wrong ones. And it's important to recognize that the Bible will do that. You don't just get to interpret it however you want. Number three, correction. This is different from reproof. Reproof is wrong ideas. Correction is correcting behavior, moral rebuke, adjustment to the way you're living. You ever read the Bible and you're like, I probably shouldn't be doing that anymore. That's correction. And number four, for training. It's kind of a catch-all word. We use that word disciple. It's connected to that word discipline, that it trains you. It, all this amounts to teaching, reproof, correction, uh, training. This is authority. This is why we're going to teach through the Bible, because it's your authority for life. You need to know it. You need to obey it. You need to understand it. So we're going to teach it. And I should add, too, since it's divine in origin, you have no right to disagree with it. You don't get to evaluate and sit in judgment on the word of God. The whole point of it being an authority is so that it tells you when you're wrong. And if you come to it and you disagree and say, ah, oh, the Bible must be wrong. It's like, then what are you reading the Bible for in the first place? If you're just, you know, that, that's not Christianity. That's not being a disciple of Christ. That's just saying, I agree with most things the Bible says, so I use most of them. 
Being a disciple is being brought into the discipline of the word of God. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And if the light shows you that this is the correct way to go and you disagree, then what's the point of having a light in the first place? It's our authority. But it's more than that because in verse 17, for what purpose? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's talk about correction and discipline and reproof. Why in the world would you submit to that? Why would you want to submit to discipline and correction? I mean, the short answer is that it's true. But beyond that, it says that the Bible makes us complete and that it equips us. Those are actually uh, the same words in Greek. One is a noun, one is a verb. That it makes us complete, artios, and fully equipped, exartizo. You see that art is in there twice? He's like, it will make you complete. It's going to completify you. It's going to make you everything that God wants you to be. This is two things. It's the character that God wants to work out in you. And there are works that you must do. So you, we all have different personalities, different characters, different backgrounds. And you pick up some habits and some thoughts and some patterns that you walk by. And God wants to change those. You just have a hard time forgiving people. It's like, I just, you, you got to, you know, do 10 days of penance before I'm willing to talk to you again. God's like, no, no, no. That's not how I forgive you. You got to work on that. And there's also behavior. Like you, you can't keep doing that. You want to do the right things, your heart is in the right place, but if your hands are in the wrong place, then what good is it? It wants to complete you as a person. And taken together, this is what we call abundant life. Remember this, John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do we forget this sometimes when we focus on the authority of the word of God so much? I know I do. But the Lord is glorified when your life are, is full to the brim, when everything is abounding in your life, that it, it's a testimony to God's goodness. Because it's kind of how God blessed Israel and God gave them everything they need so that the rest of the world would say, man, what God are you worshiping? Like, we're worshiping the Lord. Oh, can we do that too? Absolutely, you can. It's the same thing with us. This doesn't mean that God is, you know, going to give you a bunch of carnal things, a bunch of stuff to make your life good. No, he's going he's gonna to release your hand from those things. He's going to teach you that those things aren't important so that you can enjoy life wherever you are. That's what it means to be a believer in Christ. When we say we're not of this world, that doesn't mean that we just, you know, we don't cuss. <laughs> that means that nothing that the world does has any attachment for us. The world's priorities are not our priorities. The world threats bounce right off of us. We're going to take everything you have. So what? I have all riches in Christ Jesus. That's abundant life, man. You can't be touched at that point. And that's what God wants to do. The world is searching for how to live a good, worthwhile life, but it's only going to be found in the will of God because God created life. God created us. He knows how it should work. And we're, we're sinners. We've gone astray. And the Lord's like, look, if you will just walk in my word and do what I've told you to do, you will find that abundant life. You know, we don't always understand the commandments of God, but there's a purpose there. A lot of the commandments that God gave the children of Israel in the wilderness probably didn't make a lot of sense. What do you mean we can't eat pigs? I, I love pigs. It's, like, it's awful inconvenient, Moses, for me to have to go outside of the camp to use the bathroom. I have to walk all the way out there, and God's like, just take my word for it. It's for your good. Like, well, it's awful rude of you, Lord, to make the lepers go outside the camp. But they didn't, God's like, it's called contagious. You don't know what it means yet, but just trust me, okay? The, the commandments of God were for their good, even if they didn't get it. So in the same way, even if we don't understand all of God's commandments, we need to trust that it's for our good. Amen? The word of God. 
We hold the line on the word of God. We don't chafe at its authority, telling me what to do. It's for your good. That's what little children do. You know, you're not going to let me stick a fork in the socket. My mom and dad hate me. <laughs> it's like, God's telling me that I've got to be kind to people and I've got to forgive. And it's just, oh, it's just telling me what to do and cramping my stuff. It's like, it's for your good, you child. Right? The Lord wants you to be, have an abundant life, and that's what it's for. So, you know, don't look at the Bible as a ball and chain, and don't turn it into a ball and chain for somebody else, by the way. Where the only time you ever bring out the Word of God is when you're shaking it in their face because they're doing something wrong. We're only ever here going to take a stand on something that the Bible is clear on. The rest of that stuff, we can work it out. So that's the Word of God. The second thing is the Gospel. Verse 1 he sa- of chapter 4 now, he says... I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. We're going to pause right there. We'll get to what he's going to charge him to in just a second. He's going to give this final written charge to Timothy, his son in the faith. But he's going to build up to it. And how does he add weight to what he's going to ask him to do? He's going to talk about the coming judgment. And in this verse, you see a view, great view of the second thing we're to defend, which is the gospel of Jesus. If you're going to follow the word of God, it's going to lead you to Jesus. It's going to lead you to the cross. There is no abundant life apart from Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the short version that he gives here is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to return as a judge to establish his kingdom on the earth. I'm like, that's the gospel? Well, yeah, it is. It's just a succinct gospel. You can kind of paraphrase it this way. Judgment is coming. Jesus is the judge. Are you ready? Judgment is coming. Are you ready? Oh, I don't like to talk about judgment. Well, the Bible talks about judgment, so we're going to talk about it. Paul wrote in Acts chapter, or he didn't write, he said, Luke wrote it in Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the gospel. Judgment is coming. A way of escape has been made through Jesus Christ. Your sin separated you from God. Sin is the cancer of the world. It's the cancer of existence. It's, sin is wrongness. It's something that shouldn't be there. It's a deviation from who God is. And because God is just, he must judge sin. God can't just be the Santa Claus in the sky. Oh, I guess everybody's been pretty nice this year. Nobody gets coal. God's like, no, you don't understand what you've done. I have to judge that sin. But here's the deal. Because God is loving, he delayed judgment and has continued to delay judgment in order to give us a way of escape. And that is through the substitution of Jesus for you and for me. His death instead of yours. His righteousness instead of yours. And by faith, you can repent, which means to change your mind, to turn around and walk the other way and receive God's salvation. When judgment is coming, you can either show up with your righteousness or with Christ's. And only Christ is acceptable. I think I've been pretty good. No, you haven't. (laughs) It's not enough of being pretty good. It's a matter of being perfect. Well, how do you know that's true? Because Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. That's how you know. the, The resurrection was liberation from death, but it was also God's way of saying... It's only through Jesus, and here's how you know. I'm going to raise him up from the dead, and he's going to ascend to heaven. And that's exactly what happened. And you're going to be raised from the dead, too, either to mercy or justice. And it all depends on how you have put your faith in Christ or not. 
And he calls this to Timothy's mind. He's reminding him of the urgency of the mission. He's like, Timothy, you don't get to tap out here. You don't get to say, ah, I'll, I'll just let somebody else handle it. He says, no, judgment's coming, Timothy. <laughs> People are going to stand before God. You need to let that freak you out a little bit. And then he's going to tell him what he wants him to do. And in verse 2, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. With all that in mind, what does he want Timothy to do? Preach the word. He says, judgment's coming, Timothy. Go tell him the good news. That Jesus has provided a way of salvation. In good times, in bad times, with confrontation and with kindness. Just get it out there, Timothy. You've got to proclaim that message. It's the gospel. If we're playing goal line defense on the word of God, you play goal line defense on the gospel too. It's the centerpiece of the Bible. I love the Bible, but I don't think it's the only way. No, if you love the Bible, everything points to that. It's those big neon flashing arrows. Jesus at the cross. And you know, preaching the gospel, if we're using this metaphor to, it's like blitzing. It's when just we, we are, the defense is taking it to the offense. Not just ready, ready to receive, but you're going for it. And that's when the defense has a chance to gain ground back. That's what preaching the gospel is. We're taking back what's been lost. When we go out and we redeem people, we preach the gospel, they get saved, and now they're no longer part of the kingdom of darkness, they're part of the kingdom of light. They've been brought from death to life. And it's not just that initial moment of conversion either. It's everything that comes after. Discipleship, instruction, sanctification. It's what Jesus told us to do. Remember Matthew 28? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, what, is it, what does that mean? He says, he's saying, as king of the world, I command you to make disciples. This is my order as the one who has all authority. Go make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So you have the privilege to do that, to march into the enemy's territory and snatch somebody from the gates of hell. You also have the authority in Christ Jesus to get out and do that. So we got to do it. The enemy always wants to shut Christians up or get us to focus on other things. And there are other things that might be very good and important and necessary. But there's one thing that is more important than anything else. It's the gospel message. It, it brings salvation. It brings abundant life. So life then and life now, you can't compromise on that. And the enemy will take well-intentioned people and twist what they're doing because they think they can accomplish their goals better without the gospel, forgetting that the gospel is the goal. You know, I could help a lot more people if I stopped preaching the gospel. No, you can't. You won't help anybody else anymore. You've got to keep the gospel center. That's the torch that's been passed down to you the word of God, and the gospel. And we can't compromise. We can't compromise these things. And that's exactly what Paul's going to tell Timothy in verse 3. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Are we not living in that day today? How easy is it to customize your Christianity until there's no longer any threat to your life at all? Nothing has to change because I've, I've customized it to fit. There's, you can play a fun game. You can invent the weirdest heresy you could possibly think of and then Google it. I guarantee you there's somebody somewhere with a blog and a podcast teaching that weird heresy that you just invented. It's, it's almost hilarious. Like, you know, if, well, is there anybody that believes that? And you just fill in the blank and you Google it. Oh, look, there is. 
And he's got 500 people coming to his church. It's weird how that happens. He warns that believers, see that, believers, people will not endure sound teaching. Who who's cares about our teaching but people who are within the church? He's not talking about them out there. That's the world. They need Jesus, okay? That's never going to change. But he's saying folks in the church will not put up with sound teaching. Sound is the, is the Greek word hugiaino. It's healthy teaching. Healthy teaching that produces a godly lifestyle. He writes in Titus about sound teaching a lot. And sound teaching is teaching that is true that then leads to good actions. That's sound teaching. Because true Christian teaching is going to mold you into the image of Christ. That can be a painful process. And it's profoundly inconvenient to somebody who wants to live a worldly life. Because I'm sitting under this teaching and every week I show up and it seems like they're talking right at me. Maybe you should start paying attention then. Jesus said in John 15, 1 and 2, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Pruning hurts. She's like, if you're going to be on the vine, we're going to have to make some changes. Does God not accept me who I am? I thought I could come just as I am. You can come just as I am, but you don't want to stay that way. Nobody came to Jesus just as they were, and he said, Good, you don't need any change. No, they came to him begging for forgiveness. And Jesus was willing to accept all of them. So when you got a culture like ours, obsessed with customization, customize your phones, customize your food, you customize your clothes, customize your gender, whatever it is, you've got a people that are going to resist sound teaching. And the problem, though, is if you, if you have that mindset and that temperament, and you're sitting under a good teacher who's going to teach what accords with sound doctrine, you're not gonna, you're gonna be constantly having your conscience pricked against the things that you are trying to do. And that's, that's really telling, isn't it? You're not really interested in what's true. You're interested in doing what you want to do anyway, right? So suit their own passions. Epithumia, it, it, it's translated lusts in a lot of places. It's illicit desire. And Paul talks about this a lot. The Bible talks about false teachers being motivated by their own lusts. They wanna be Christians to get the salvation part of it, but they don't want to change anything. So they twist the word of God in order to validate their own ideas. And once you do that, once you write some weird book where you've t twisted the scriptures or some guy has started his own thing, you can point to this book or this podcast or this teacher, or this denomination and say, ah, see, that issue is just a matter of interpretation. So you can't force me to change. That makes things very difficult for us in the church because now there's a new temptation that comes in, which is, okay, people are staying within the church, quote-unquote, but they're twisting the scripture, and we're losing a lot of people. Should we then move the fences to keep them in? Because we want to keep people in the church, right? Well, yes, you do. But I'm going to say this very plainly. You do not gerrymander the gospel. Gerrymandering, you know this, right? This is when politicians will adjust the lines of the districts in order to make sure that they never lose another election and all their voters are in this part. And that's gerrymandering. You don't do that to the gospel. Oh, the people have moved over here, so we're going to move doctrine and bring it over this way. You, you can't do that. He, we, if someone abandons the truth and runs after a myth, we mourn, we try to get them back, but we continue, as he said, right? Back in verse 14, we continue. We keep going. We don't try and <laughs> like trick people into staying or like they, they give their list of demands and what they're looking for. And we're like, oh yeah, we can come up with a Christianity for you. No problem. You know, it's just going to 
take 9.95 plus shipping and handling to fix it. No. Second Corinthians 4 verses 2 through 3. I love this. Paul says, we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying, I'm just going to tell it just like it is. And even if they disagree with me, at least they know that I'm being upfront and I'm being honest with them. What if people won't get saved then? Verse 3 of that passage, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. If somebody hears the the pure, unfiltered truth of the gospel and rejects it, they've rejected the gospel. That's not your fault. That's on them. Paul said also in 2 Corinthians, we're not peddlers of God's word. Like, hey, I've got some scripture for you. All your needs will be met right here. It's like, no, you have one need and that need is salvation. The Bible tells us what we need in the first place, right? We're jo- our job is to proclaim the truth, to preach the word, and to leave the results up to God. Right? I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. God always gives the increase and only gives the increase. So that's that charge to Timothy and to the rest of the world. The, the world, the church, they're going to falter. But he says, but as for you, carry the torch. Continue without compromise. In verse 5, he says it again. As for you, it's sude in Greek. So I can imagine like Paul just like, you know, Sude, Timothy. <laughs> like, as for you, young man, right? It's got that weight to it, okay? And he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. He's drawing a sharp contrast. Says, They're going to go from bad to worse. They're going to heap up teachers, but you will be different from that. This applies to all of us, but it especially applies to me as your pastor. How am I supposed to handle changing times? How am I going to lead you to do the same? Well, he gives us four things here. We need to be sober-minded. We can't be, there's two, that you can't be oblivious. Everything's great, no problems, and the world is burning around you. And you can't be so depressed, like it's never getting better. It's all over. The only thing that can possibly happen now is, is the rapture. Yeah. You don't know. It says be sober-minded, clear judgment. He's like, yeah, things are tough, but you know what? Jesus is on the throne. It's going to be okay. Sober-minded. Number two, endure suffering. Don't be afraid to suffer especially in the context of persecution here. Oh, something bad might happen. And Jesus was nailed to a cross. And the disciples rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. If we're suffering, then we're failing. No, it might just mean you're doing something right. Number three, do the work of an evangelist. I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's okay. You can still do the work of an evangelist, Paul says. He's always telling Timothy, don't be timid, don't be scared, don't be afraid. So maybe Timothy was kind of a shy dude. But he's like, you still got to do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. You might not be out there, you know, boldly on the street corner or standing on TV in front of millions of people. But listen, you got that guy at work you can talk to. You got that neighbor next door that drives you crazy. So I have not been specially gifted, but you have been commanded to share the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. And number four, he says, (laughs) I love it. Well, that's not my ministry. Okay, well, what is your ministry? Number four, fulfill it. I don't know what it is. Well, you best find out. You got to figure it out. What has God prepared for you to walk in? I believe that my ministry is to be, at least here, the defensive coordinator for God's team. To train up a lean, mean, nasty defense that when the enemy comes out and they're running all their plays and their trick flea flickers and all this stuff, right, that we're just, they get pounded and they get pounded. One down, two down, three down, punt. Oh, good, we get to go off. 
And then all of a sudden, they get the ball back. No, we got to go back out. And they're like trudging out onto the field. we got to line up again. And then we're out there like, yeah, you're back for more? You ready for this? Let's get down. Let's get set. Let's get high. Let's do this, right? That, that's who we need to be. We, okay, we might not be able to make the same kind of advances that other people did. Who cares? We've got our job to do. We don't live in a place that is as, as ready to receive ministry. Cool. That means that God has to do some great things through us. That's the only option. We don't need to be afraid. You know, early, in the early in church history, in the 300s, there's a guy named Athanasius, was the last Orthodox Christian in the entire world, him and some monks that were living in the desert. Every other Christian and every other church had been mandated by the government to deny the deity of Christ, to deny the personality of the Holy Spirit, and to deny that salvation was an eternal state. It's called Arianism. And they were all forced that way, except for Athanasius, who was fleed, fleed fled to the desert. And they, they had a phrase about him called Athanasius contra mundum, Latin for Athanasius against the whole world. He was the fingernail that God used to hold the church on to the ledge without falling off. And if God can do that, we should be confident too. Remember what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16? He said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what's cool about gates of hell? Gates don't march, right? Gates like have to stand and are just, just waiting to get knocked down. If you make the same confession that Peter made, you're part of that same church, then that tells us that the powers of hell cannot defeat us. How about that? We cannot be defeated. Oh, things are so much harder now than they were. What about back in the day where everyone went to church and everybody loved Jesus and, and it was just wonderful and no one ever sinned and you know everyone just walked down the street singing just as I am and it was wonderful and it's like, but now it's our turn and it's hard and you know people are are talking about you know outlawing this thing and they want to they want to come after us here and I'm made to feel weird at work and I'm told I'm not allowed to talk about the gospel. Okay, you got a bad punt. Get out there and play defense until we get the ball back and we get to make some advances. If we're stuck in a bad place, that doesn't mean that we're about to fail. It means that God has to do something. So it's like, all right, Lord, you set us up for a miracle. So we're going to put ourselves in a position to receive what you're going to do. And the Lord will always lead us on to victory. Always. He always leads us in triumphant procession. So fulfill your ministry. Find out what it is and do it. The enemy will oppose you, but he can't stop you. He has no hold on you anymore. So if the Lord should tarry, we have many years left with, with this ministry here, with Calvary Chapel Trustville. This is day one. We got a lot of days to come, right? So let's say together at the very beginning that we are never, ever going to slacken up. We're never going to let up and say, ah, we've, we worked really hard in the beginning. And remember, we were doing all that crazy stuff and we were all tired. And now it's just good to take, kick back and relax. No, we're never going to do that. Always advancing and pressing on. And we're never going to be intimidated. Oh, they, they told us we're not allowed to do that. Yeah, we serve a higher authority than that. We will always be pressing on. We'll never be intimidated. And that we will never, ever compromise the word of God or the gospel.